Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. So good to have you with us, everybody. Appreciate you tuning in. This is an important podcast. Each and every one of ours we'd like to think is important, but this one is definitely one of the more important podcasts as we're going to be talking in the Hot Topics segment about the most recent or the recent ruling of the U.S. Appeals Court where they deemed the CFPB, quote, unconstitutional. That's the one reoccurring word that appeared in all the headlines. And talking about that, we have as our Hot Topic special guest, Mitch Kider. Good to have Mitch back. He's the chairman, managing partner of Wiener Brodsky Kider, and uh, he has been the attorney that has been representing PHH in the lawsuit, in the case where PHH Corp pushed back and filed a suit against CFPB. And the ruling came back favorable. So we're going to be talking about that in the Hot Topics segment. Very excited about this podcast. And the audience that we're getting a chance to share this with is huge. And the opportunity to share this information with all of you. So anyway, this podcast, again, is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, although we do have an increasing larger audience beyond our mortgage professional world. But it's for mortgage professionals, and we're the proud recipient of the Progress and Lending Innovation Award. Very grateful for that. Good to have back on the program someone I consider a great friend. Joey originally introduced him to the podcast and to myself, and I'm just telling you, this friendship and uh, partnership has gone to dimensions that have just really been on. Uh, one of my favorite downloaded programs is Mitch Kinder talking about his uh, Father's Day. We had him on with his three sons talking about work-life balance. It was a great program, and if you haven't listened to that one, be sure to go back and do so. Also, we had Mitch on on April 18th talking about the upcoming uh, – well, they, in fact, the arguments had just been presented on the Consumer PHH versus CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for those that are not a part of industry, and that audience is growing. It's amazing. But the Consumer Financial Protection Industry has had just kind of like a freewheeling run at our industry, and many questioned the, un- the constitutionality of it, how it was structured in many of those um, aspects of how that was being done, and PHH was the first to push back on that. Mitch Kinder was at the ground floor, at ground zero, when that first started. He has been working with PHH. He built the arguments. He really brought that case to the forefront. And at the appropriate time, when the U.S. appeals, when it was argued before the U.S. appeals, or the ruling that, that where they lost, PHH lost initially, it was appealed to the U.S. appeals court, and Mitch was instrumental in that. So we're really fortunate to have Mitch Kinder, who's the managing partner of Wiener Brodsky Kinder, a Washington, uh, D.C.-based national law firm specializing in the representation of financial institutions, residential home builders, real estate settlement agents. Mitch has over 30 years of experience practicing law and is one of our top mortgage industry experts. He has, uh, represents clients in investigative enforcement actions before HUD, VA, Department of Justice, Federal Trade Commission, Jenny May, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and various other state and local authorities. He does a great job, and he's a friend of the program, and we're thrilled to have him here to talk about the PHH versus CFPB case. Mitch, so good to have you back on the podcast, my friend. It's great to be back, David. Thank you. 
Let's start off. So many. First of all, you're so well known to the industry, and kudos and uh, to you for the work you've done, and congratulations on this victory. While someone else argued that you were behind the scenes, helping and working with much of this. So let's talk about looking forward. Now that this has been ruled, this seminal rule came out and and ruled in uh, against CFPB. I'm looking at the headlines. By the way, I have the. Um, the Wall Street Journal headline up here, and it starts off as saying the Federal Appeals Court delivers a strong rebuke. The, uh, then also we have the Housing Wire headline. It says what was once unthinkable actually happened. And then and then uh, then we look at Bloomberg's report, and it's a little survival. CFPB survives legal attack. <laughs> I saw that. I was going, Bloomberg, come on, man. That is just a wrong characterization. They have just overreached. And you talk about that. So are are you – I assume this is almost a rhetorical question, but are you pleased with the court's decision, Mitch? Oh, yeah. We're very pleased with the uh, court's decision. We're really pleased that, you know, they did it in in such a well-reasoned manner. It's it's an excellent decision, and uh, how could we not be pleased with it? We waited for it for a long time. We were confident from day one uh, that we were right in this particular case. And the court vindicated PHH, and that's what's important here. Well, one thing that's interesting is it was argued before three judges, and I think this is, a, is this a five-judge panel, am I correct on that? And that all of the judges that uh, reviewed this were all Republican appointees, which really goes to you know, the appeal part of this. But let's, first of all, um, is that going to be an issue, you think, with, with the fact that it was three – was it three judges? Yeah, it's a three-judge panel. When you argue before the uh, – the United States Court of Appeals in any of the circuits, there are 12 circuits. When you argue there, it's always right. before a three-judge panel. That's correct. Okay, and, thanks. yes, there were three Republican judges on it, but, you know, the system is such that judges are randomly appointed to these particular cases. So you can't really read much of anything into that. So do you expect the Bureau to appeal? Well, you know, based on everything that I've been reading, I do expect that the uh, the Bureau is going to appeal. You know, I would hope that they wouldn't. And I don't believe that their appeal is going to have very much merit to it uh, at all. But do I expect them to? Yes, I do. And they have the ability to do that in a number of different ways. They have 45 days in which to uh, ask for a rehearing or a hearing in banc, which means that the entire Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia would listen to the, uh, to the case. Or they can go uh, and appeal to the uh, United States Supreme Court, seek cert, and uh, they have 90 days in which to seek that. So, Well, when you talked on the podcast on the April 18th, you said that was one of the things, if I recall from that podcast, listened to us here several times just recently preparing for this podcast, you said that would be the most logical place for this to be heard. But what interest did the Bureau, CFPB, specifically, uh, would they be seeking to protect in taking an appeal? Or going for an appeal? Well, well, I, you know, there are a number of things that came down in this case. There are four basic uh, holdings in this case. The first is that the structure of a single director uh, at the CFPB, who is really not accountable to anyone, could only be removed for cause by the president, but otherwise could not be removed, that that structure is unconstitutional. My guess is that's what concerns the CFPB the most. The three other rulings are very, very important as well, important to the industry. The three other rulings are as solid as anything you will find. Not to say that that unconstitutional ruling is not solid, it is as well. But in the three other rulings, I mean, what the court found is that PHH rights to due process 
was violated because the CFPB sought to punish them for something that the law clearly allowed. Uh, That's one uh, piece of it. And, And then they said, and not only that, the CFPB took 40 years of interpretations, threw it out the door, and said, we interpret this statute, RESPA Section 8, and specifically 8C2, differently. And the court said, that violates due process. You cannot uh, take an action against someone that's not on notice of something's wrong. In fact, in fact, David, let me just say this. They had this great, uh, this great paragraph in there where they said, it's like walking up to a policeman on a street corner, asking him if you can cross the street, and he says, yes, go ahead and cross the street. And then when you get to the other side, he gives you a $1,000 ticket. That's, that's yeah. what the, yeah. the court said the CFPB effectively did here. If there was any confusion, you would think that would bring some clarity to it. Alice, let me toss the mic over to you. So, um, so, okay, you got through two of them. Yeah, so will the Bureau get assistance from the DOJ in connection with the appeal? Well, you know, back in 2012, uh, the DOJ and the CFPB entered into a memorandum of understanding where on matters like this and appeals, they would meet and confer and consult with each other on those things. So my answer to you is probably yes. I'm sure they're talking about it. I'm sure they're meeting about it. And the other thing that comes into play is the Solicitor General's office, which is a part of the DOJ. Solicitor General argues cases before the Supreme Court for the United States, and they argue some other appeals as well. And they always get involved if there's a constitutional issue. So will the CFPB get assistance along those particular lines? Uh, I would say probably yes. So will the Bureau adhere to the D.C. Circuit's opinion while the appeal is pending? Well, one would hope so. They should. <laughs> uh, and, and one would hope that fact will do that. Uh, you know, the issue that you have over here is that the CFPB seems to think, at least I deduce this from their actions, they, they seem to think that regulatory uncertainty is a good thing. And they play that game for quite some time. It's something that the industry has complained about. We want to know what we can do. We want to know what we can't do. Uh, Don't just hit us up with consent orders and enforcement orders and say, and now you know. And and so one would hope that the CFPB will, in fact, adhere to the D.C. Circuit's opinion. Uh, I'll take it one step further. I think they will. I think they will, uh, pending any uh, appeal that they have uh, ongoing. But I am a little concerned about the fact that they, uh, since its inception, the CFPB has uh, has really ruled through regulatory uncertainty, and they seem to like it to be uncertain there. And that's because they have disdain for a lot of the practices of the industry, uh, you know, marketing agreements and things of that sort. And so they like to have that uncertainty out there to scare uh, lenders and other settlement service providers from certain practices that they don't like. That's a great point. Joe? Yeah, I was going to go there, Mitch. Um, so with this ruling, does it change advice that you might give to people in practices regarding like marketing services agreements, which were uh, in most cases uh, terminated as a result of the fear from the uh, CFPB? Are, are those things that people can get back into now? Well, the first piece of advice is always to be extraordinarily cautious and make sure anything that you structure, you're going to structure in a way that's somewhat airtight and that is uh, is defensible. Uh, if you just go under the PHH decision itself, if you go under the Court of Appeals decision 
in PHH, then yes, marketing services agreements would be okay as long as number one, real services are in fact being provided, and number two, it's the reasonable fair market value that's being paid for those services. The court is clear, even in the case where there are referrals, HC2 is an exemption that says even if there are referrals, if you are paying for the reasonable fair market value of other services that are being provided, that is acceptable. That's, that's allowed. And that's clear, and that's always been clear, quite frankly, under Section 8 of RESPA. It's just the uh, Bureau that kind of went off uh, a little bit away from, uh, away from that. So, I mean, if you're giving advice, you know, if someone's going to ask you if it's absolutely airtight and properly structured on marketing services, okay, the answer is yes. But, again, one has to exercise some caution. Uh, the decision just came out. The CFPB does have the ability to appeal these things. And there's a lot that happens around marketing service agreements and lead service agreements and other things of that sort as well. So be cautious before you just go ahead and jump right into these things. Yeah. Well, how about the Lighthouse uh, consent order? That was a, a title company that got fined a couple hundred thousand dollars for you know, a marketing services type arrangement. Does this change anything about that uh the, the guidance that came from that? Sure. It changes a lot about the guidance that came from that. I mean, it was Lighthouse that uh, first came out with this concept that said that even if you're paying for services, uh, the mere fact that you gave uh, someone a contract to provide marketing services for you is a thing of value. And therefore, if they're referring business to you and you gave them this thing of value, you have a Section 8 RESPA violation. That's what Lighthouse was all about. Well, the court addressed that head on, and the court said they were deeply troubled by those particular arguments and, uh, and said that the statute was absolutely clear. That contra- a contract uh, to provide services is not a thing of value when you're looking to see whether or not someone is getting paid for a referral. So, yes. This changes that lighthouse determination uh, a great deal. It's not going to have an impact on the consent order itself that lighthouse entered into. But what the CFPB has done is uh, issued these consent orders, these enforcement orders, and then told the industry you're com- you, you, you know you're practicing malpractice in compliance unless you follow those things. Well, this case tells you no, that's not right. You have to, in fact, look and go through notice and comment rulemaking, and it's got to be constitutional, and you can't put out a rule even that's contrary to the plain language of the statute itself. So this case changes a lot about what Lighthouse uh, title had done and what it says. Absolutely. Wow, Mitch, so much amazing stuff. It's Andy. Thanks for being on Licking on Lending. I have a couple of questions as well. And so in listening to you, it's just like, you know, wow, the, the Goliath – uh, the David B. Goliath kind of thing. And so so what about all the other deals? What about lead agreements and joint marketing and desk rentals? And should we rethink this is, is, as long as they're fair value-based? is Are they okay? Or what do you think? Well, I think the court's pretty clear over here, and that is that 8C2 says that you can pay bona fide compensation or salaries for services that are rendered, and you can pay fair market value for goods or facilities that are being provided. And as long as you structure your arrangements along those particular lines 
as long as you make sure the services really are being provided or the goods and facilities really are being provided, and as long as you make sure that, in fact, you're paying reasonable fair market value, that, yes, you can do these types of things. And, and this is very uh, a, a big change from the CFPB's position that had been taken prior to this case. Well, it's, it's great to see some level of common sense coming back. One of your partners, a good friend of mine, Troy Garris, has been telling me they're wrong, they're wrong. Someday you're going to see they're wrong. And it's exciting to see that you got to lead the charge for that to happen. So as you as you look at this now, and so as we, as we look at, you know, election coming up soon and, and there's all the politics that come into play, and there's a Forbes article that just came out that talks about CFPB picked the wrong fight, so are they going to go pick another fight? And, and so the fact that Dave mentioned earlier at the start of the show that there were um, three judges, and I think all three were Republican, uh, do you think that, that the composition of the panel – would have uh, or drove the decision, or will it be held up under review because it was three Republicans? Or is there any politics we need to read into this? There was no politics in the decision that was rendered by these judges. The unfortunate situation of where we are in this country today politically is when one group disagrees with what's issued by some judges, and and recognize this is the second highest court right below the Supreme Court of the United States. When one group disagrees, they come out and they yell and they cry that it's political, and that's all that it is. Uh, And, you know, both sides of the party, the right, the left, the Democrats, the Republicans, uh, they're all guilty of doing that, and to a certain extent in this particular matter, they're all guilty uh, of doing that as well. I will tell you, these, these three judges bent over backwards to think this case through as, as, as well as anything I have ever seen. And I've been litigating cases for a period of 35 years. This is a 110-page, well-reasoned decision. And I, I actually think they took into account many of the arguments that opponents to, uh, to this uh, had made. And so I don't believe there was any politics at all. And, in fact, I'm certain there was no politics that was involved in the decision that was made in this particular case. And I think it's time that people stop throwing those things out there because it's actually offensive and it undermines our judicial system. Well, given the analogy you gave, and and Troy's mentioned something similar, that the police officer says, go ahead and cross the street, and you cross and get the ticket. That's a great analogy, and it's so clear for the novice to understand the point. So it it kind of begs the question still, well, why would they appeal if it's so egregious in the behavior that they've implemented? Um, uh, That's not on our, our list of questions. It's just a thought I've had. Well, well, I mean, the, the answer to that is, listen, the ball is in their court. It's their choice as to whether they appeal or not to appeal. I don't like to guess as to what their underlying reasons are, but I will tell you, you know, having, having litigated this case all through, and yes, I was involved in the appeal, uh, very heavily involved in, in, in orchestrating this appeal as well, having litigated this case all the way through, uh, you know, my conclusion is they want to be completely independent. They don't want to be accountable. 
They don't want to have to answer to the President of the United States, which, which to me, I can't understand, in all honesty. I can't understand that at all. Yeah. You know, we, we were created by the Constitution to have three branches of government, and all were accountable, and there were checks and balances. This is not part of the three branches of government. We've never had an independent agency created quite like this one with a single director not accountable to anyone, only could be removed uh, for cause. And it would seem to me that any, on any side of the political spectrum, you would view that as being dangerous. You would want better checks and balances right. in that particular system. Let's move over to Paul Mallow's question that he sent me. He said, what does this mean for FHFA, which has a similar structure? Not exactly the same, but a similar structure. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? So, so Paul, that is, that, is, that is actually a great question. And, you know, just before the argument, after the case was briefed in the, uh, for the appellate court, and just before the argument itself, the court went and asked the CFPB to give them a list of any other agencies that look anything like this. And they were hard-pressed to come up with any type of a list. And they came up with a list of three, two of which are very different, and, in fact, their constitutionality is being challenged. One is Social Security. Uh, they went to a single director system. But the issue with Social Security is they can't take uh, legal actions against, uh, you know, citizens and, and individuals. So they're not exercising that type of executive power. Yeah. One was a special uh, prosecutor, and, and that was challenged. And, in fact, we had, uh, you know, we've had presidents in the past, including uh, – including Bill Clinton, who said that that, in fact, created constitutional issues. And the third one was FHFA. And the court addressed it, and they said, look, we look at FHFA. It doesn't provide any precedent for this case at all because it is a contemporary to the CFPB. Uh, the, the manner in which FHFA is structured today uh, was structured in 2008. And, and the court says you know, that it raises some of the very same questions. So those questions are there, and those questions may be raised by others at some point in time. I think the basic fundamental analysis really is going to come down to whether or not any type of an entity that's structured like the CFPB, whether or not it possesses unilateral authority to bring law enforcement actions against private citizens, because that really is, as the court says, that is the core of executive power, and, as the court says, that's the primary threat to individual liberty that's posed by executive power. And that's where you really need to have accountability and checks and balances. And so if anything's going to be analyzed, I think it's going to be analyzed along those particular lines. Good. That's a really good point. I'm looking at the time, and we're just about out of time as we wrap up this interview. It's the same question we asked, or similar question we asked at the last interview in April. We've got the election coming up. Uh, and I'm wondering, will the outcome of this election have any bearing on this case uh, or on the Bureau? Do you see that election, whether it's a Trump or Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton in the White House? So I think there are two things. I, I don't think the outcome of this election is going to have any bearing on the case itself. The case is there. There's a great uh, decision that's been rendered. Uh, and, you know, we'll see what happens if there are any appeals in this particular matter. Will the Bureau look different, uh, you know, if, uh, if there's a Trump over a Hillary Clinton? Well, if you listen to a lot of the things that Trump has been saying, 
he doesn't like regulations, and he said he's going to abolish regulations. I haven't heard him say anything directly about the CFPB itself. So I would imagine it would look a little different under, uh, you know, in the unlikely event you have a Trump victory. Uh, I, I imagine it would look a little different, uh, but certainly not if Hillary is the president. Yeah, that's mine. I think it's more of the same if we have Hillary as the president. Trump, we don't know because there's not been a lot said. He's been focusing. It's quite an interesting election, to put it mildly. But, Mitch, thank you so much for coming on and giving us clarity about this. For you listeners that are not familiar with Mitch Kyder, you've got to get to know him. If you have any issues that you're litigating at all, you need to get a hold of Mitch. He is a champion for our industry, a fierce warrior, and probably one of the most intense competitors out there. And I if I'm going to have a battle like this, I want I want to have Mitch on my team. Mitch, for those that want to reach out to you and uh, talk about their legal matters with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, you can get me on my email, kiter at thewbkfirm.com. So it's K-I-D-E-R at thewbkfirm.com. Or you can call me on my number. It's uh, 202-557-3511. And he Appreciate does a great it, job. Kathleen. Yeah, Frank, thank you so much. Kathleen's his assistant. If he doesn't, he answers his phone, folks. He actually answers his phone. And But if he's not and he's busy, Kathleen will do it. It'll take care of it and get your information. Really a great team with you and Kathleen. Mitch, thank you so much for coming on the program, being here with us. Really appreciate it very much. Folks, we have had Mitch Kider with us of the WBK firm. I encourage you to forward this particular podcast out to all your associates. It's a very important podcast, very far-reaching of consequences of this. We're excited to have uh, this be out in front of everybody. Andy, Joe, Alice, Mitch, everybody, Sam, and Paul, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Look forward to having you back next week. This has been Lincoln on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening. 